Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently talked with Andrew Field about his new book, Shanghai's Dancing World, Cabaret Culture and Urban Politics, 1919 to 1954. That came out with the Chinese University Press in 2010. Now, Andrew... Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently talked with Andrew Field about his new book, Shanghai's Dancing World, Cabaret Culture and Urban Politics, 1919 to 1954. That came out with the Chinese University Press in 2010. Now, Andrew um, was very generous in talking with me from China, um, where he's working on some very exciting new research now. Um, And we talked a, a lot about the sort of various dimensions of this book that in name is about um, cabaret culture, but really functions as kind of a walk through modern Chinese history through the dance halls and the dancers and the people who were experiencing sort of changes in modern life and incipient modernity um, in a whole range of different contexts that can uh, collectively perhaps be considered nightlife, but really the resonance of which kind of extends much more broadly than, than simply to nightlife and simply to cabaret culture. I think historians of space, historians of popular culture, historians of literature, of music, of jazz would all benefit from reading this book. And uh, we had a good time talking about it. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Andrew. Hi. We're here today at uh, New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Andrew Field about his recently published book called Shanghai's Dancing World, Cabaret Culture and Urban Politics, 1919 to 1954. Now, this is a book that, um, for those who haven't yet had the opportunity to read it, it's about much more than the history of dancing and cabaret culture, although that certainly, um, you'll certainly find that here. Shanghai's Dancing World um, does a great job of situating the Shanghai dance scene in the early 20th century as a microcosm of much, much more than dancing and really um, a microcosm of the modern history of China. So thank you so much, Andrew, for making the time to talk with us today. Oh, you're welcome, Carla. So, Andrew, um, if you wouldn't mind, and also thank you for joining us from Shanghai, which is um, nice of you to make the time given the time difference. Could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of what got you into Chinese studies, Chinese history? Wow, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, just a um, little, just a little bit. <laughs> I think I have a very otaku nature. For those who uh, know Japanese, uh, meaning very, you know, a tendency to become obsessed with arcane knowledge, and uh, that probably led me to China, because I think China is a country that's been obsessed for thousands of years with arcane knowledge um, and history and and the. Uh, Know, the legacy of 5,000 years of civilization. So in a nutshell, 
I think I was, I started out with a fascination in college with uh, the language, both the spoken and the written language. And uh, that was my initiation into, into China. Um, I went to, I went to China um, soon after starting to learn the language and studied in Taiwan and ended up studying very intensively Chinese in Taiwan for a couple of years. Um, and, and then at the same time was traveling around mainland China around the time of the, the 1989, uh, the famous events of 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, right, right before that crisis took place, I was traveling all over China and I think it was just the most amazing trip of my life, you know, and, um, just made me intensely curious about this country. And that's a curiosity that's been sustained through the past 25 years of my existence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So why, um, how did you come to work on this topic in particular? Why dancing? It's probably a long and tangled tale. I, I mean, it goes back to, of course, this was my dissertation topic and i think when you're you're young and in your 20s you're interested in in things having to do with popular culture and um certainly this was the case with me i was i was very interested in chinese music i was listening to a lot of different styles of chinese music some going back to the 1930s and uh, i was finding out that there was this fascination in china Taiwan and Hong Kong with music from that period, from the so-called golden age. So I had a whole collection of tapes that I bought in Taiwan of the the golden age singers like Zhou Xuan, um, these singers who were, who were also stars in in the film industry, and that led me to Shanghai. And then I was kind of trying to come up with a dissertation topic, and I I suggested to my advisor I was I was at Columbia University, and my advisor was. Madeline Zellin, who's, as everybody knows, is a Qing economic historian, very different field. But as soon as I said popular music, golden age, uh, Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s, she lit up and she said, that's your topic. Run with it. So I took off and I just I went down to the basement of Columbia University where they have this massive collection of original, you know, uh, documents, materials, books. Um, in Asian studies, the Star Library. And I found this collection called Ling Long, which was a women's magazine published in the in the 30s. And Columbia happens to have uh, the only complete set uh, for, for some reason. Um, and so I started looking into those, you know, looking, looking for information about uh, popular music in, in Shanghai in that time. And I just kept seeing this this references I, all over the place to Wu Ting and Wu Nu, you know, dance halls and dancing girls. Mm-hmm. And I just found article after article about these these spaces and the women. And at the same time, and this involves one of your other uh, interviewees, Andrew Jones. I was uh, in communication with him, and I think I met him at Harvard. Um, and it turns out that he was researching the history of popular music in Shanghai. Um, and that became the basis for his dissertation and his first book, Yellow Music. And so he um, he told me, you know, about his topic. And, and I thought, well, he's already doing this research. I might as I might as well kind of focus on it, you know, in, in on a different angle. Um, 
And the interesting thing about that is that it, it turns out that the book, the dissertation that he wrote in the book was, were quite different to what I imagined they would be. So actually, there's still a lot of space to to research popular music and the, the famous singers and, and so on from that period. Um, although he still wrote a wonderful book about uh, people like Li Jinhui, the, the godfather of Chinese pop. Um, but, you know, I, I started focusing in on what the Chinese call the Xian Chang. And I think that's been my obsession ever since the Xian Chang, like the the uh, the site in which the music was performed, in which people danced to the music, and those were the dance halls, those were the the ballrooms and the cabarets. So in my otaku fashion, I just fixated on that subject and I looked for everything involving Wu Ting and Wu Nu, and just started combing all the other books and and newspapers and magazines that 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 the uh, Columbia University Library had and then I went to the New York University Library and and I just started you know discovering how rich the nightlife of 1920s and 30s Shanghai was and and how magical it was to the people who were there and how legendary it became and at the same time uh you know uh, the movie Shanghai Triad had just come out the mm-hmm. Zhang Yimou film about a cabaret girl in Shanghai and her relationship with a gangster, which ends up very badly as people who have seen the film know. Um, and so there was, I, I just, you know, I realized this is a fantastic topic. Nobody's really done an in-depth study of it. And there's so much rich material there to delve into. And so I think when you're in your mid twenties and you're, you're doing a dissertation and you have that kind of personality, you just delve deep, deep into it. And it's kind of like deep sea diving, you know, you, you get down to the bottom of the ocean and there's all this, all these strange objects and you kind of try to pull them up to the surface and figure out what they were about. Um, And so that's what I was doing. And I was just, I was obsessed with this and I was just mapping out all the cabarets and ballrooms on a map that I had of old Shanghai, you know, and I was in my apartment in New York city, just mapping these all out, putting little red dots where all the cabarets had been and just kind of imagining what the streets look like and what the, what the ballrooms themselves must've looked like and the people who went to them and what kind of world they were living in. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, all these books started coming out on Shanghai. So I was kind of riding the crest of this wave of Shanghai studies. It was like the Shanghai Rua as we as we might call it you know there was this obsession and fascination with old shanghai with shanghai from the republican era so frederick wakeman's book came out and gail hershatter's book on prostitution fred wakeman's book on policing uh, brian martin's book on the green gang and it just at the same time i was doing all this research all these wonderful academic monographs were coming out so i just latched on to them and started you know started liaising with all those people and they were incredibly encouraging especially frederick wakeman he was just um i think he encouraged me just just about more than anybody else there were probably two people who and and as i write in my preface um who encouraged me one was fred wakeman uh through a series of emails that he wrote that we exchanged and then another was leo lee um, Leo Fan at Harvard University, and I went up to see him, and and he was incredibly helpful, and introduced me to the Xiaobao, um, the Crystal, and other uh, tabloid newspapers of that era. And it was just oh, it, it, this incredibly rich 
uh, coverage of the entertainment world of Shanghai. So I just dug into that. And then, of course, I got a fellowship and went to Shanghai. And my entire life was transformed, <laughs> you know. So I think it, it, it's, uh, yeah, that's the story of how I got into it. Um, psychological reasons for why I would get so involved in this are probably another issue that you know, <laughs> I'd have to discuss with my psychiatrist. But, uh, you know, we all, we all get into topics for, for different reasons, probably having to do with, like, you know, our, the, the fundaments of our own personalities. Um, so, yeah, so I just kept researching it in Shanghai. I went to the archives. I went to the municipal library. And again, this, this rich treasure trove of documentation and um, this whole world of entertainment just opened itself up to me over the next couple of years. Um, and then, as as you know, and as anybody who's done a PhD knows, there's that it, that that incredibly difficult process of trying to figure out how to make sense of it all and how to put it together into a comprehensive story or a thesis. Um, so I, I was, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of smarter scholars than myself would have come up with a thesis to begin with and then gone and got their material, but uh, I kind of dove into the material first and then had to try to pull out a thesis um, around that. And uh, I suppose that probably makes for a slightly more complicated book and certainly a, a more difficult project, which probably explains why it took me another 10 years to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, so my, yeah, no my advice to young scholars is uh, choose your thesis and, and then go out and research your, your materials. And, uh, you know, don't spend 20 years uh, between graduate school and, and the publication of your first book like I did. Well, it was quite, it was an odyssey. It was an Odyssean adventure. <laughs> well, it's the, what you're um, saying here actually gets us right into one of the issues that I wanted to ask you about, because you mentioned um, the wealth of materials that you found when you started looking um, and starting at the Columbia Library and the really rich materials that um, you found there that got you into this project in the first place. I think this is a moment that we can all give thanks for our librarians and our library collections, right? Especially those of us who work on Asian history. Um, without that, I think our careers would look very, very differently. But this is, um, so you mentioned these tabloid magazines and you mentioned your interest in space and mapping, and we'll definitely get to that over the course of our conversation. But can you um, maybe get us started by talking a little bit about the kinds of sources that went into this book? Because one of the striking things for the reader is the wealth of material and the very different kinds of material that you're bringing to bear in creating this extraordinarily um, compelling and very richly textured tapestry of nightlife in Shanghai. Um, well, very well put. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it was just, there was this, in a, as anybody who has studied the history of Shanghai knows, um, especially if you have the ability to read Chinese materials, there's just this incredible wealth of documentation on the life of the city, on the cultural life of the city. And it, um, it's just seemingly endless, this, this kind of bottomless well of magazines and newspapers and 
and visual materials and films and novels. Um, and, and very few cities, I think, are have that kind of wealth. I suppose New York does, um, Paris, um, but there's, you know, a small handful of, of cities in the world that were just, uh, that built up this amazing print culture around the process of modernity. Because what I'm, you know, what I was really trying to study was the process of, of modernity of, of Chinese people encountering the modern world and how they negotiated the modern world, which was a very uh, alluring and yet very threatening and hostile world. Um, and so, urban urban culture was was central to the, the construction of the modern world and, and modernity. Um, in terms of the materials themselves, as I said, you know, these tabloid uh, newspapers, um, there are just hundreds of them published in Shanghai between the, the, you know, during, throughout the early 20th century, they just kind of came and went. The crystal, which I mentioned, was one of the major sources, mm-hmm. and uh, it covered, you know, it, like uh, these other tabloids, they covered news items, they covered kind of international news, but a lot of their pages were devoted to entertainment. And by the end of the 1930s, there were two, there was one page devoted entirely to the dance halls mm-hmm. or the cabaret culture of the city. So that's how important it was. I confess that I didn't, I was not never able to go through all of those pages of materials. Um, but I, but I did go through a good 15 years of coverage of that world in the crystal. And uh, that, that became kind of the backbone of, much of the cultural history that I was, that I was trying to document and make sense of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were the archival documents, the, the government records. And in that, in that area, I was very lucky. I, this was before the, the Shanghai Municipal Archives, um, you know, uh, went electronic and you were able to get on a computer and just tap in the, type in the keyword and find anything you wanted. Um, this was back in the age of, uh, you know, not even a card catalog, but just books based on departments. And it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. But one day I was very kindly ushered into a secret room where they had a card catalog that they were, I guess, using in preparation for the electronic catalog. And they, they showed it to me and they said, you have a day, go to it. And I found 200 documents and wow. files in that day, all, you know, because for the first time I could see things organized by topic. So I just went to, you know, the topic of Wu Ting, Wu Nu, you know, dance halls, dance hostesses, um, cabarets, bars. And I found this treasure trove of, of archives, mostly from the Shanghai government and police force of the international settlement back in the, you know, 20s and 30s. And I also went through the Shanghai municipal police files while I was at Columbia University and found dozens of, of case files on the cabaret industry. Um, so, so just pulling all that material together, just thousands of documents and trying to, you know, put it into chapters and tell it, you know, into a narrative and tell a story. That was the, that was the long and arduous process of the making of the book. Yeah. Is there, and it's really amazing to think about, um, what that process may have been like. I mean, I think for any of us and for anyone listening who's either been through the process of creating a dissertation and then a book or who is now in the process of creating a dissertation, one of the biggest challenges is to figure out what not to include, 
right? Sort of how to deal with this morass of material that all seems relevant and how to weave this into a coherent story. And I think you've done this amazingly well here, but I can't imagine the, um, the challenge um, when you talk about that, having that much material to work with and how to cull. Well, I'm sure you can, you can probably imagine it if you're, you're a historian of science, right? That's right. So you've probably, you know, um, studied the, uh, the the story of Joseph Needham and his books. And I mean, it's that kind of process of just going through massive amounts of documentation and trying to pull it all together. And uh, I, I'm just mentioning that because I, I know that you, you study science and, and medicine mm-hmm. um, as kind of an example. I certainly don't intend to compare myself to the great Joseph Needham, <laughs> although I, I see him as a wonderful inspiration. And other people like Fred Wakeman, right. who also just go and, and research, you know, thousands of, of documents and, and write a thousand page book that, that then their editor has to tell them, well, it's got to be 400 pages. You've got to cut it down. That's right. um, is, there, yeah. is there anything in your um, in these explorations in the course of your research that um, any sources that really excited you or was there a moment that you found something that um, really shocked you in the course of your um, exploration of these sources and or um, is there anything that you were particularly excited about that actually didn't make it into the book that you didn't have um, a chance to fit in? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I, I suppose um, on, on the one hand, some of the violence that took place in cabarets um, and then in Shanghai in general was quite shocking and disturbing. Um, we, we live in, I suppose, a very tame world. Most of us, probably most of us listening to this podcast and doing research on China, we live in a very tame and gentle world. Mm-hmm. Um, Shanghai was a world, uh, you know, wrought with terrible violence so I think some of the um, some of the most shocking things that I discovered were had to do with the gangsters and their their behaviors and this the pathologies of of urban life the way that especially the way that women were treated in that world and uh, some of the you know terrible and shocking things that the gangsters did to women not just gangsters but politicians as well when they they were being troublesome. Right. So, uh, for example, um, I believe it was the brother of TV song or was it TV song himself? I can't remember, but, uh, I, I write about this in my book. You know, there was this case where he went, you know, he was obviously one of the most powerful men in China, uh, brother-in-law to Chiang Kai-shek. He, he got involved with the dance hall hostess. All those, all those high officials did back then. Um, many of them. And so when she became troublesome to him because he was married and so on and so forth, um, he just called upon his, his gangster friend, Du Yuesheng, the big gang boss of China, of Shanghai. And uh, Du just, you know, took her and, and, and did what he did with all of people who were making trouble. He just had his men uh, put her in a bag and dumped her into the river. Yeah. Um, and, and that was just a very typical uh, I think, you know, for that world, Shanghai in the 1930s, that was a kind of typical way of dealing with troublesome people. This was a 
this was a city where people were dying on the streets on a daily basis. You know, peasants coming in from the countryside, children. There was terrible cholera. And I like to remind people because I take a lot of tours of the city. I, I, I give a lot of guided tours of ballrooms and so on. In fact, I'm doing one tonight Oh, interesting. On, on the Bund. Yeah, I'm taking people to the Astor House and the Peace Hotel, which was once the great Cafe Hotel where Victor Sassoon held these wild dance parties. But I like to remind people that while walking to these parties or just while walking to the gym in the morning, you know, the average Shanghailander would, would run into, you know, would just have to step over dozens of dead bodies. This was a city that was in terrible, you know, in terrible straits, um, opium, prostitution, et cetera. So I think that that was kind of the shock. And then in terms of the dance hall, the other thing that I found very interesting was the sexual aspects of the dance halls. But these were things that weren't really covered in a lot of the literature or the magazine, you know, the, the popular newspapers, partly because um, the Shanghai Municipal Police were were uh you know had rules about uh, about uh you know censorship and and sexually ex- explicit material tended to get censored so i actually uncovered in the shanghai municipal police files quite a few documents of you know um translations of stories in chinese newspapers and books about very sexually explicit um episodes uh most of them fictional mm. and uh some of them many of them having to do with the cabaret culture um, and a lot of that I didn't include in my book, um, but I did recently finish writing an article that's going to be published in a, in a journal called Intersections sometime next year. Hmm. And uh, it's about the, the sexual aspects of the, the dance hall culture and just, you know, because the, dancing is a very sensual activity, this intimate embracing of bodies. And, uh, of course there was a lot of sexual play going on in these dance halls. Mm-hmm. Um, but normally that wasn't, it was just kind of vaguely touched upon in, in most of the literature, but there were, uh, stories, novels, short stories, and even a couple of memoirs that, that were very explicit about the erotic activities that took place in the dance hall. So that's, that's something that I've kind of collected and put into an article, um, uh, about the dance halls as a sexual contact zone. Um, and it was mostly, this was mostly a world for Chinese people, I should say. You know, Shanghai was an international city, but there were only, you know, a few tens of thousands of foreigners living in the city, and there were millions of Chinese. And by the 1930s, the, the cabaret industry, with its hostesses, with its, you know, female dancers, uh, which we would have called taxi dancers, um, diamond dance girls, um, they totally dominated that industry. And so one of the things that I was really trying to look into was the lives of these women, their strategies, their, their kind of life trajectories, where they came from, where they were going, why they were, why they had gotten sucked up into this world, which was a very glamorous, but also very dangerous world. Um, and I think that in terms of, you know, the, the, there's, there's also a very big, I think, you know, um, trend now in China for women from the countryside, because that's where most of these women were from, to get sucked up into um, the nightlife industry in Shanghai or in any Chinese city today, or, you know, other um, what we call kind of soft sex industries. 
And so this is a very important phenomenon, I think, that is uh, a very important part of the, the pattern of urbanization that China is undergoing right now. Um, so I hope that if people read my book about the 1930s, they can draw some parallels and, and uh, find some more insights into the contemporary, you know, contemporary urban life in China. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. So the, so to get sort of more deeply into the book itself, um, this, the book opens in the introduction with, um, some really compelling metaphors and analogies. And, um, you talk about a, a guidebook that compares Shanghai's nightlife to the Arabian nights. And, um, there's a description of Shanghai as a heaven built on hell and really some really compelling descriptions. Um, but one of the things that the introduction does is really sets up, um, for the reader, the kinds of sources and the kinds of perspectives that you're bringing to bear, um, on this, um, on this study. And that includes, um, as you kind of discuss it here, old Shanghai nightlife through both Western and through Chinese eyes. And, and um, using a Chinese perspective here or using a lot of Chinese sources to talk about this is actually um, really fascinating and one of the great contributions of this book. Now, one of the um, ways that the introduction and the beginning of the book sets this out and does this is by um, putting next to each other two writers, um, one of which, or one of whom um, the, our listeners may have heard of, um, Walter Benjamin, and one of whom they may not have. Um, the, um, and you talk about the fiction of uh, Mu Shiying. Mm-hmm. Now, because um, Benjamin actually comes up in a number of places in this study, um, and I'm uh, sort of wondering, did um, it seems like Benjamin's work um, really shapes some of how you're reading Shanghai nightlife and the culture of um, urbanity in Shanghai nightlife in this period? Did how did Benjamin's work shape the way you thought about Shanghai in this context? Is that something that was there um, early on in your thinking about this project, or did that develop over time? Or um... I, I would say that um, my interest in Benjamin kind of developed in parallel to this project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly don't uh, consider myself an expert in his thought, <laughs> although I have a few of his books and I, I try to understand him. Actually, I think that anybody who claims that they really understand Benjamin is is probably mistaken. <laughs> you know, I, except uh, there are probably a few experts out there in the world who have have really delved into him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whose books I also have, and I try to read them as well. But um, there's just, I think it's just it was his way of trying to understand urban modernity. <laughs> that always fascinated me and still fascinates me today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, of course, when I started doing this research, the, uh, the Paris arcades, his book, the arcades project had not come out in English yet. I think it was published at the, at the beginning of this millennium out of Harvard university press. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have access to that at first. And, and as soon as that came out, I just became fascinated with, with that book. And I started th- trying to trying to apply some of the insights and methods of his book to my study of Shanghai. I thought there were a lot of parallels in the way, in the way that I had just collected all these quotes. And, you know, I, I have uh, um, on, on my computer just databases of, of thousands of quotations from newspapers about Shanghai. Um, so I, I, I felt this affinity with his kind of painstaking method of, 
although his project was much more grandiose in its scope um, about Paris in the 19th century, but just trying to kind of resurrect this lost city in in all its detail. Um, And his metaphor of, maybe it was Hannah Arendt's metaphor that she used for him about the pearl diver in the introduction to his book, um, is it Illuminations? Um, the uh, where she you know talks about Benjamin as kind of diving for pearls, going down to the into the deep sea. So I began to think of myself as this deep sea diver trying to find these these pearls, um, uh, all these sort of the detritus, which you know what he called the, the detritus or the garbage of of history, the sort of the forgotten stories, the forgotten people, um, the people who were not. You know, making headlines in national newspapers, um, but just kind of people who are living their daily lives and and trying to struggle in this modern and ever changing metropolitan environment. Um, so I think for me, Benjamin and his work were were a great inspiration. Um, and I, you know, and I, I liken him to Mu Shiying, you know, who was an avant garde writer in Shanghai in the 1930s who I also feel kind of an affinity for, you know, he was this, uh, you know, elegant kind of a dandy, I suppose, from a, a wealthy banker's family, although his father went bankrupt at some point um, in the early 1930s. But uh, he was very well-educated and kind of an autodidact and, and uh, graduated from Aurora College in Shanghai um, and and just started frequenting the dance halls as a young man and eventually married a dance hostess. And he um, wrote these wonderful avant-garde, um, very, you know, kind of ultra-modernist stories about life in Shanghai. And many of them had to do with the dance halls and with the dance hostesses. So he became a constant source of fascination for me. And I thought that Mu and Benjamin had some affinities as well. So I wanted to kind of lay those out. And I, I, I felt that, you know, somehow if Benjamin had gone to Shanghai in that time period, he would have spent a lot of time in these cabarets and, and cafes and would have soaked up a lot of insights into what, what was happening in China at that time. And he and Mu Shiying would have had a fascinating conversation. Um, if only they had been able to speak to each other. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they were both these great explorers of the urban condition and of the, the psychology of the urban condition, the alienation, the, the endless quest for kind of material pleasure. And, um, and, and of course, other people like Simmel and all, all of these sociologists coming out of Germany, uh, you know, in that period were, were also, you know, Krakauer, the, the so-called Frankfurt School, they were also... Uh, doing this, so so all those people were an inspiration to me in my work. I I think of myself almost as a sociologist of history, mm-hmm. in a strange way, and I've I've actually become more of a sociologist over time in my own research and writing. Hmm. How so? so? Well, because you know, my second book, I, maybe it's a little early to jump to that now, but oh, that's okay. That's um, okay. Since you, you know, since you asked my my second book, which I'm co-writing with a sociologist named James Ferrer, it's called Shanghai Nightscapes, 
and we're we're just about finished. We we have a contract with the uh, University of Chicago Press. We're hoping that the book will come out next year, and it's about a century of nightlife in the city. And we've done a lot of of in depth, you know, field research and participant observation in the nightlife scene um, since the 1990s. In fact, between the two of us, we estimate that we've logged certainly over a thousand nights in different bars and clubs in Shanghai. (laughs) Research is so hard, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it's a dubious distinction, I suppose. Um, But uh, yeah, some, some aspects of the research were a lot of fun. But of course, you also have to be very methodical about this and you have to take careful notes and observations and you have to uh, interview. I think we interviewed at least a hundred different people who were key players in the nightlife scene as it's developed over the past 20 years. So I just felt this was a way for me to kind of, uh, because there were so many parallels with the twenties and thirties. This was a way for me to kind of experience what, what I could only experience vicariously, you know, by reading texts, in, in my dissertation research to actually go and see these transformations firsthand and experience them and be kind of a part of that scene. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where my research has taken me. And I've also done a lot of work with film, filming, uh, nightlife, filming pop, uh, filming music cultures. I, I just produced a, uh, a film on the, uh, rock music in indie rock bands in, in China. So oh, kind of, uh, these are these are you know uh, these these interests are I guess are all related to what I said at the beginning of the Xianchang, just being in that Xianchang, that that site where you know the music and the dancing and and everything is being produced and being transmitted. You know that's actually a perfect um, segue to what I wanted to um, ask you about next um, because. Mentioning the language of sites and even the title of the new book and congratulations on the contact. And I think we'll all look forward to that book, Nightscapes. Um, and you mentioned that you, you're giving guided tours and, um, even your description of the per- the databases and the kind of personal archives that you're amassing is a kind of mapping. Metaphors of space and the concern with space and spatiality are, are so important, at least from the perspective of a reader, to what's happening in this book. And I think one of the um, really engaging and unusual things that it does is use the both explicit sources of spatial history. So we'll talk um, in a little bit about, or I'll ask you in a little bit about uh, architectural plans and sort of maps mm-hmm. and how those help shape the story, um, but also um, more generally there's a real kind of spatial sensibility to what's happening here. Now, the um, the next uh, part of the book, after we move um, past the introduction, which there's lots more in the introduction that um, I'll just mention um, that fact for listeners. Um, and there's, I already know you're, you're um, <laughs> such an interesting person to talk to that there's going to be, there's lots of stuff in the book that's fascinating that we're not going to get to talk about. But one of the things that I, we will, um, it gets us into the, really the meat of the book in the next chapter. Now the book itself is structured in two parts. Um, part one um, that we'll turn to next is called the social. And part two, I think is a political. And this is where you give us a social and cultural history of the rise and the flourishing of nightlife in the twenties and thirties. Um, now that you start off with a chapter here that looks at how how jazz music and dancing became popular 
among yep. uh, Westerners, right, in Shanghai in the 1920s. And one of the things that this um, that you talk about in this chapter is the importance in this context um, of national balls. Right. Yes. Um, now, these national balls were very ritualized affairs. And you talk about this as a kind of um, I don't know if you use the language of ritual space, but I have written down that these these are kind of become ritual spaces. And you do this great job of bringing us into ballrooms and national balls is kind of laying the foundation of this nightlife. Um, can you talk uh, a little bit about the importance of national balls in, in the 1920s and um, this sort of ritual aspect of them? Absolutely. And this is a great question because it, I think it brings up a major theme of what I'm trying to understand in, in, in the xianchang of, of nightlife in general and live music spaces is the ritual aspect. And, and in fact, you know, what you might call the sacred aspect of these spaces, there's, there's a certain uh, sacredness attached to them. Um, and it, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I at some point before I came upon this as a, as a dissertation topic, I was interested in doing something on, you know, temple culture in China or, you know, studying the space of the temple. And I, and I, I ended up studying the temples of the flesh instead. Um, but, it, but I think that what, what's similar to a church or any kind of ritual sacred space is that people are coming together in song and dance. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that's one of the most sacred activities that humans have have been doing over the millennium. <clears throat> and one of the one of the most interesting books that I encountered in my my journey into this project was um, William McNeil's book "Keeping Together in Time." <sighs> and uh, as some of you might know, he's a, a Harvard professor emeritus and a one of the the greatest world historians. Um, that the 20th century produced. And he came up with this book about the importance of dance in human society and how, how dancing has been, has been with humanity since the beginning of time, uh, so to speak, you know, since we were human. And it was in fact, something that kind of made us human. It it allowed dance and and song, dance and music and, and uh, these body rituals allowed for human communities to come together in much larger numbers. Um, otherwise, we would all just be, you know, constantly at war with each other in tiny little tribes, the way that the way that the uh, our ancestors, the chimpanzees, were and are. So, you know, that's kind of his thesis, and and I buy that, and I, I you know, I, so when. So dancing has always had this sacred aspect of bringing together communities, of forming kind of communitas through the ritual of dancing. And, and in European society, uh, in court life and, and so on, it became very highly ritualized and staged. And then that turned, you know, morphed into the 19th century ballroom culture, which was then transported over to Shanghai when, when Shanghai became a treaty port in the 19th century. And then so into the, you know, from the late 19th century into the 20th century, um, there were these societies, the British St. George's Society and the, the Scottish St. Andrew's Society and the Americans. Um, they all had their grand balls and they had their special days, um, you know, George Washington's birthday ball and so on and so forth. 
um, where they held these huge events. They would invite thousands of people to attend. And, and the entire guest list for these balls was always published in the North China Herald, as well as a very lavish description of all of the decor, the design work that went into the ball, the organization of the affair, and then kind of you know how it was carried out. Excuse me, including what people ate and drank and how much they consumed and and how crazy the dancing, uh, you know, it became this kind of you, you, almost orgiastic ritual by the end of the night, you know, getting into three or four in the morning. Um, it was just this massively drunken sort of orgy of delight. Um, I don't, I'm not saying not in the literal sense, but uh, there was still a bit of decorum attached and people kept their clothes on, but it was definitely a, you know, every year this was a very memorable and signal signal event for these uh, Western, these communities of Westerners living in Shanghai. Um, but then in the 1920s, when the jazz age hit the world and just, you know, just, this huge tsunami wave of jazz went all over the world that started invading the space of the ballroom. And, and that's kind of the trend that I discuss in chapter one and how the ballroom culture that was highly staged, highly ritualized with minuets and quadrilles and all these 19th century dances, courtly dances, how they, you know, people started to shimmy and, and, and do the Charleston and the Foxtrot. And it just kind of, you know, there was this great like anxiety and concern over these, these ritual affairs becoming just sort of chaos because of the, the madness of the jazz age dance madness is what they called it. Mm -hmm. And as, as part of this kind of um, explosion, perhaps, I mean, we will have actually literal explosions later in the book, but if you, the metaphorical explosion of jazz culture, one of the interesting things about this chapter is that you talk about the centrality of um, American jazz musicians to what's happening um, in the Shanghai dance club scene in this period. And one of the figures who stands out as particularly important is this guy, Whitey Smith. Yes, and he's important. Can you um, talk a little bit about him? So who was he, and why um, was he so important to the Shanghai nightlife scene in this period? Absolutely, um, and and I think I have. Uh, I'll just give a shout out to um, the law librarian at Columbia University, Kent McKeever, who's a uh, um, a collector of old Shanghai books and materials, and and he and I developed a, a friendship while I was doing my research and, and he, I think it was him who, who pointed out Whitey Smith and his memoir to me. And this was a great find because this is one of the richest uh, documentations of the jazz age in China. Um, and he just writes copiously about all of his experiences as a band leader in Shanghai. And uh, I was only able to include a, you know, tiny portion of his material mm -hmm. in the, in my book. Um, but he came out to Shanghai in 1922. He was a jazz drummer working in the Barbary Coast in San Francisco. Just when jazz was starting to really hit it big and, and white musicians were taking up the jazz idiom and kind of, you know, and he was one of them. And then he was discovered by this man named Louis Lado, who was running a nightclub in Shanghai, an American. And uh, he, he convinced Whitey to sail out to Shanghai and, you know, I think he probably thought, like most people who come to Shanghai from abroad, they think, well, I'll be here for a couple of months, see how it goes, have a bit of fun, maybe a year. And then they end up staying the rest of their lives. And I'm, I'm one of those people um, who just got 
sucked in again and again. It's kind of like a maelstrom. It's like the, you know, but anyway, so Whitey went to Shanghai and he uh, started up a band and he just got hired by all these wonderful uh, nightclubs and ballrooms to be the orchestra. And, and in addition to playing all the great American hits of that time, he started composing his own music. And at, at one point when he was performing at the Majestic Hotel, which unfortunately is not there anymore, it was it was the finest ballroom in China, but it was destroyed in, in the Depression era. Um, he was performing there and, and the manager said, well, listen, Whitey, you know, there are quite a few foreigners living in Shanghai, but not enough to sustain a regular business for this ballroom. Um, you need to find a way to attract the Chinese customers. And so he tried this, this and that and tried these little visual gimmicks and nothing worked. And finally, a Chinese friend of his who's educated in America said, look, Whitey, what you have to do is uh, you've got to play music that Chinese people can appreciate. And it was kind of like a light bulb went off in his head. And so he just went out and started listening to Chinese music and really, you know, bending his ear to Chinese folk tunes. And, and he started incorporating that into his repertoire. And as he describes in his memoir, lo and behold, the Chinese started coming to his ballroom in droves and, and literally elbowing the foreigners off the dance floors. So I think he, you know, as most uh, musicians and, and performers might do in a, in a, autobiography he probably exaggerates his own his own place in this in this process which was a more complex process of you know chinese people becoming accustomed and and embracing the jazz age mm-hmm. you know it was a it was it was a basically a 10-year process that took place in the 1920s that started with just pure you know shock and disgust and disbelief at these foreigners and their ways and then by the late 1920s, the Chinese were literally elbowing the foreigners off their dance floors. Um, and, and I've documented this in many other sources as well. There was just this surge of Chinese dance madness. And that's the subject of, the, of chapter two of the book. So that, that really just started it off. And then after that, so the first chapter is really the world of, of Westerners in Shanghai. And after that, it becomes a Chinese story. Right. The Chinese just completely take over the industry. They dominate it. They they take it over physically. They take it over economically. They take it over culturally, and they turn it into a hybrid space that was, you know, had some elements from Chinese leisure culture, going you know courtesan culture, um, tea house culture, and so on. But also was very modern, and there was nothing else like it in China. Right. And actually, this idea of hybrid spaces is something that um, also comes up in the third chapter that you talk about. I mean, this is chapter three, Towers and Palaces, um, takes us into the physical space of nightlife in 1930s Shanghai. Um, and this is a period where really the, the built structure of ballrooms and dance halls really kind of diversifies. And one of the striking things in here is um, the emerging kind of importance of intimate spaces in these ballrooms, right? Yes, um, that's another great um, observation because, you know, that's so important to that chapter that, um, you know, in the 1920s, the model of dance hall was basically this big cavernous, you know, room with marble floors. And it was very grandiose and eloquent, kind of like the the main hall of a king's palace, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in European culture. But it wasn't a comfortable space to dance. 
And so in the, the first big innovation in the 1920s was the creation of the sprung dance floor, you know, putting uh, springs underneath the dance floor so that people could actually kind of feel more comfortable and their, their feet would get tired after an hour of dancing. And, and that happened in the West. And then China very quickly, I mean, Shanghai very quickly adopted that. I think the French club, the Circle Sportif Francais in the French concession was the first ballroom to adopt the sprung dance floor. Um, and then in the 1930s, there were all these innovations around creating intimate spaces because there were people realized that, you know, the psychology of space, that um, if you have a big cavernous ballroom like the Majestic was, it was this big marble, you know, ballroom with pillars and a fountain in the center, very regal. But, you know, if there weren't a thousand people there on a given night, the place would seem totally empty and desolate. Mm-hmm. And so they started building new designs and the Paramount Ballroom, which is definitely Shanghai's most iconic ballroom of that period, was um, the epitome of this. Um, The the Chinese architect who built that, he decided, I'm going to create a ballroom that can fit a thousand people comfortably. But if there are only 50 people coming on on a Monday night, you know, they'll still feel comfortable and they'll still feel like there's a party on. Mm-hmm. And so he built all these little intimate spaces and alcoves and private dining rooms and, and a bar. And uh, the dance floor, the main dance hall itself was c- kind of compact. If you can go there today, it's one of the five or so ballrooms that still exist from the period. And the only ballroom that is still being used as a commercial dance establishment uh, that I'm aware of today. Um, and, it, and it does feel very kind of compact compared to some of these other ballrooms from that from the earlier period. So he was trying to deal with this psychology of the consumer. You know, you come into a a clubbing space or a dance space and, you know, or a bar or whatever, and you, you want to feel like you're, you're, you know, that there's a party on that, that you're, you're mingling with a lot of people. And so this was a design, uh, a design principle that I think just carries throughout the 20th century and into the clubs of today. You can, you can see it certainly in Shanghai clubs today. They're all, most of the good ones are designed on this principle. They have got a lot of small spaces that kind of add up, but they can close off certain spaces if there's, if there isn't a big crowd. And so they're, they're always trying to crowd people into a, a tight space. That's kind of the principle of good, good club design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really starting in the 1930s. And this chapter also, I mean, in addition to bringing out the importance of air conditioning, right? I mean, the historian of science in me loved that aspect. And I, frankly, if it doesn't already exist, graduate students everywhere, someone needs to write the book on air conditioning and modernity. Maybe it already exists. <laughs> um, but one of the things that's really um, engaging and really useful, I think, in this chapter is the kinds of source material that you use to get a sense of what this felt experience and also built experience of space um, in these buildings um, was like. And so can you, you use blueprints in here, um, you use architectural journals, and at, at one point published illustrations Right, drawn illustrations of the nightlife and the dancing um, in a particular club um, as sources. Can you sort of talk about the the challenges um, or you know, the experience of using these kinds of spatial sources to tell the story? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean that was 
these, this was just a series of great discoveries that I made in the Shanghai Library, um, partly because um, the Shanghai Library itself was publishing these books of old photos, and I started seeing old photos of dance halls come out in these publications, and I started talking to the librarians and saying, where did these come from, and can I, can I get access to them? And, and then I started discovering all these specialized magazines on the dance halls that were that were published by the the dance halls themselves, so that was one source. Um, and they and they would have blueprints and they would have you know illustrations of the ballroom and so on, and pictures of the dance hostesses. <clears throat> and the other source was the architectural magazines from that era, architectural journals, and there and several of the mo of the most important. Uh, Ballrooms and nightclubs in Shanghai were published in these architectural journals, like the Paramount Ballroom and Ciro's Nightclub, and the Metropole Ballroom, which was the only ballroom in Shanghai that was designed according to traditional Chinese design principles. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to tell people the story of how that ballroom was built and why they chose to build it in a Chinese style, and, and it had a lot to do with Chinese nationalism at the time, in the mid-1930s, and the fact that dance hall culture was coming under attack by Chinese nationalists. This is a foreign culture. It's decadent. It's bourgeois. It's, as the Communist Party would later say, spiritual pollution. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of, you know, there, and in fact, that's a major theme of the book, I think, and of this culture. You know, this is a foreign culture that's streaming into China, and it is decadent, and it is hedonistic, if you want it to be. You know, it's a, it's a culture that can be constructed in many ways. And it was very threatening to the patriarchal order of, you know, of, of Chinese uh, politics and, and society, um, especially having all these women running around uh, kind of loose in the night with no fixed position and, and no fixed status as prostitutes or, you know, any kind of category that, that could kind of fix them into a, into a hierarchy or into a position. Um, so it, this, this all has to do with these anxieties that surrounded the ballroom culture. So one way of dealing with, with that was to cinify it and say, oh, well, this culture has, been, it's, this is not a Western culture. It's been around for millennia. Ch Chinese culture is incredibly rich. So you can, you can always find some kind of analogy. <laughs> so one of my favorite, you know, and I think I talk about it in a later chapter. Um, one of my favorite finds in this vein was a poem that was written in imitation of an ode by the famous Tang poet Li Bai, the famous alcoholic Tang, Tang Dynasty poet, who wrote about who wrote about you know courtesans and and a lot in the fantasy world of court life in in the Tang period, and so they changed it around very cleverly to cover the dance halls. Mm -hmm. And for um, for listeners who haven't um, yet had a chance to read the book or who need a reminder, that poem is actually on page 171 and 172. It's really great. <laughs> so let's yeah, because the original sorry, the original poem was called "Ode to Drinking." Uh -huh. right? It's a very famous poem, and most Chinese people know this poem. So they changed it to "Ode to Dancing." That's so great. Yeah. So, so let's actually, um, if you don't mind, talk about some of the people who were actually populating these dance halls and, and helping to create this space. And you mentioned um, the women. You just were talking briefly about the women who were um, working here. Um, and this is what you devote a whole chapter to this. Um, it, 
So I think it's um, a really important contribution of the book. Can you um, talk for a little bit about um, what kinds of women with what kinds of backgrounds tended to be recruited as dance hostesses? So who's actually working as a dance hostess and um, where are they coming from? Absolutely. Well, this is something that uh, fortunately was extremely well documented in government archives, especially when the Japanese started taking over the city in the 40s. And, and they just had uh, incredibly detailed records of who was who was frequenting the dance halls, who was working in the dance halls. So I actually have statistics in the appendix of, you know, the native place origins of dance hostesses and, and so on. And, and it, it basically fits the pattern of, of Shanghai society in general. You know, Shanghai was a sojourner society. It was a society of immigrants from um, many different parts of China, mostly from the surrounding region of Zhejiang, Jiangsu, um, to a slightly lesser extent, Anhui, and then other, and, and then basically the more remote the province, the less likely, uh, the, the less, uh, you know, smaller the number of people. And that was true of the dance hall hostesses too. So most of them came from, the, what you'd call the surrounding hinterlands, you know, smaller towns and villages outside of Shanghai. And there was a whole recruitment process, which uh, I knew a little bit about, partly because a, an American journalist named, I think her name was Edna Lee Booker or something. She um, she did a study of, of this and she interviewed people and, and she found out that, you know, these women were being recruited into the dance hall industry um, by people who just went out into the countryside to find pretty girls, bring them back into the city, um, introduce them to the dance hall world. So there was a whole process of acculturation, which again is very significant to the, the experience of urban modernity. You know, most people living in big cities historically and even at present were not born in the big cities to begin with, or their parents weren't born there. They were, you know, first, second, or third generation migrants, and you have to acculturate yourself to the life of the great metropolis. And so these women were being recruited by the thousands to come to Shanghai and, uh, you know, become part of this dance hall industry. And so they had to learn to dress properly. They had to learn to um, style their hair in the, in the popular styles, if they wanted to get customers, they, you know, they had to learn to wear proper shoes. And so they would have a whole wardrobe of dresses and high heel shoes and all the accoutrements of, you know, modern urban life that were being kind of constructed in Shanghai at that time, sort of modeled on Hollywood, but with a Chinese flair, the, the chi pao dress and, and so on. Um, so this is a world that I definitely, you know, and I, I encountered a lot of rich, detail about this world. I think as a, as a man, I, I, I want to just talk a little bit about kind of my own gender bias and perspective, you know, and I, 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 I welcome female researchers to come in and, and do more research on this, on this world of dance halls and hostesses. And I think they might come up with different interpretations than I did. Um, I, 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 and probably, you know, to, to use a kind of a stereotype as a male, I'm sort of obsessed with mappings and spatial references. Um, and you see this difference in, in literature on prostitution, for example, where, you know, Gail Hershatter tends to talk about the lives and the personal travails of courtesans in her book, Dangerous Pleasures. And and Henriot touches upon that, but he, his is much more of a space, uh, Christian Henriot's book, Prostitution and Sexuality, in Shanghai, a fantastic monograph based on extensive archival research. And, 
and his is much more of a spatial mapping and he has maps in his book. So I guess I was influenced by both. You know, I wanted to get into the lives of these women and try to understand their, their private lives. And there was a lot of very voyeuristic, uh, you know, accounts in the newspapers about their private lives. So I was able to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things, um, so I, one of the things that um, for listeners who may, again, not have had a chance to read the book, that's really interesting in this chapter that I won't ask you about so that we can actually move to part two of the book and so that I don't keep you here all day, um, is this um, institution of dance empress contests. And so a kind of pageant um, to uh, choose the top dance hostesses. So I won't, I won't ask you about that, but I will signal that as a particularly interesting part of this chapter. For, okay. our, um, for our listeners. Now, you go on to talk about in the next chapter and then in the first chapter of the second part of the book, which um, talks about the social and political history of the decline and fall of nightlife in the 1940s and 50s, um, not just the uh, the hostesses um, who are working at these nightclubs and who are such a central part of Shanghai nightlife, but also the patrons. And so um, there's a really interesting chapter that talks um, largely about the patrons and who, who was actually spending time um, as customers in these halls, which um, Chapter 5 for listeners has a fascinating discussion of cabaret jargon um, and ballroom etiquette and, and sort of how one actually learned to dance in this period. Um, but one of the um, most important um, for this book, at least as a reader, groups of patrons were gangsters. And in particular, um, the book talks a lot about the importance of the green gang. Now, what I wanted to ask you about um, is that once we move to uh, the second part of the book in Chapter 6, one of the sources um, used to talk about the sort of criminals and gangsters and their centrality to cabaret culture um, was an interview with a a man who was a high-ranking police detective. This is uh, Joseph Xue um, and a second-rank member of the Green Gang during the 1930s. Can you um, talk about this context of the Green Gang um, in this period? And and also, what was it like to interview um, Joseph Xue? Okay. Well, um, yeah, that that was a fascinating... That was actually... I just mentioned Christian Onryo and his work on prostitution and and he's a he's one of the most productive scholars of Shanghai history. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduced me to Mr. Shuya uh, Shigunsen, and uh, I had an interview along with my um, wife, who was then my I guess girlfriend at the time, Shanghainese girlfriend. A very typical pattern, I guess, of us male Western academics coming here and meeting women and getting married anyway so she she actually helped me through this interview because uh, he a lot of it was in shanghainese um but it was in a mixture of shanghainese french and a little bit of broken english that that he told his story um so we he wanted to go to the mansion he wanted to conduct this interview in the mansion where general bai chong si lived in french concession one of the big uh, guomindang generals and a and a former warlord had lived in this mansion. So we met there and uh, we had a spot of tea and we conducted this interview and he was 96 years old, this very wise and old, you know, kind of shrunken man, um, but still very lively and, and had his wits about him. Um, and he just, I, and I asked him all these questions about the cabarets and uh, the gangsters and, and all of the stuff that he was part of in the twenties and, he spoke very openly about it and 
told me lots of stories. He used to, you know, when he was a, a police detective, he used to do nightly rounds in the cabarets. So he knew them all. I mean, um, he knew quite a few of them very well, and he knew the people who worked in them, and he knew the gangsters who had connections with them. And um, he was in the gang himself, and he was also very close to Huang Jinrong, who was the Pakmark Tuang, uh, the big gang boss in the 20s, before Du Yusheng kind of took over the enterprise um, and established his sort of uh, paramountcy over over the Green Gang in the 30s. Um, so Huang Jinrong was the chief of Chinese detectives in the French concession and also uh, the city's leading crime boss. And, uh, and Joseph Xie, Xie Guangxin, uh, you know, used to have meetings with him in a bathhouse. And one of the stories that he told me, I don't know if this made it in the book, but he told me like, you know, in 1924, Huang Jinrong was, uh, was arrested because he had, he had, uh, this is a famous episode. He had organized the beating of a, of a man who um, was at his opera house, which he owned. And uh, his favorite opera star was, Taking opera star was singing one night, and this man was booing and catcalling, and so he had his men take him out and beat him to within an inch of his life. And that man turned out to be the son of the most powerful warlord in the region, and so that trumped the most powerful crime boss in Shanghai. So when the warlord found out, he had Huang, you know, he had his men go and arrest Huang and take him to a prison or a jail cell you know, way out there in the countryside, and then Du Yusheng had to kind of organize and negotiate for his release. Um, and that was really the, the rise of Du as, as in, you know, the beginning of the rise of Du as the most powerful gangster in Shanghai. Um, and then, so Joseph Shui told me that uh, he was in a bathhouse with Wang Jinrong, and, and Wang told him, like, well, you know, today uh, Du Yasheng called me up on the telephone. Even back then they had telephones. <laughs> and uh, normally he would, he would address me as Uncle Huang, you know, a very respectful, you know, Huang Shu Shu. Um, but then today he called me up and he said, Huang Da Ge. Now he called me Big Brother Huang. So at that moment, he knew that his, his uh, you know, he, he, uh, that, that Du was kind of replacing him as the big gang boss. Um, and so there were many little kind of anecdotes that that he related to me but mostly he just told me about um the the relationships between the gangsters and the cabarets and he confirmed my suspicion that uh one of the leading uh dance industry managers a guy named Zheng Weixian was um affiliated with the green gang as well and uh so you know you know it I, in retrospect, I, I wish I had done more interviews. I think if anybody's doing a researching into history that is living history, where people are still alive who experienced it firsthand, I do highly recommend that they go out and just try to find as many people as they can to interview. I wish I had done more of that in Shanghai. Um, I guess I, I was, you know, I was a little bit too obsessed with archives and newspapers and, and, uh, so I missed an opportunity to interview people who were living from that period who could have given me their stories. But of course, as anybody who does oral history knows, um, the memories of people in their 80s and 90s is often um, colored by you know, subsequent events in their lives, and it can be very inaccurate. Um, 
So you have to take it all with a grain of salt. But yeah, that is one thing that, that I regret um, not doing more of. Well, it was it was a really interesting part of the book. And this comes um, at a part of the book where you're arguing um, and showing, I think, really interestingly, that uh, cabarets really emerge as important sites of resistance or collaboration during this wartime period. And cabaret hostesses became national icons, right, and started to write their own articles about dance culture. So um, I won't, again, for, in the interest of time, I won't ask you too much about that, but I'll just highlight that as um, something that's particularly interesting in this chapter. That this, And this is the chapter that opens and closes with a bombing in a cabaret, um, which, right. is, which is interesting. Now, the book goes on um, to really chart the kind of decline and fall of this cabaret culture that you've shown the rise and emergence of in the first half of the book. Um, and part of this is a story about um, new systems of licensing and control over the hostesses. Um, it, it highlights um, the role and the emergence of, of the Shanghai Cabaret Guild. So this is actually a particularly interesting story um, from the perspective of labor history as well, um, which is another of the many different fields I think that this book contributes to. Um, but there's a, in chapter eight, there's a particular moment that you talk about that was um, very engaging and, and kind of surprising for me. And that's this moment of the dancers uprising, um, mm -hmm. which was wonderful. If for listeners, again, who aren't familiar with this, um, this period of history or who haven't yet read the book, can you talk a little bit about this dancers uprising, sort of what led to it and what were the consequences for um, Shanghai cabaret culture and, and for the protesters themselves? Yes. Um, in a nutshell, um, in the late 1940s, the Guomindang um, you know, uh, basically took control over the city for the first time um, after the end of World War II. Uh, during World War II, the, the foreign settlements, the international settlement and French concession had been, had been uh, handed back to Chinese sovereignty. Um, and so when the, when the Guomindang uh, returned when the, the nationalists under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek uh, returned to Nanjing in 1946. Um, they had always had this notion that they wanted to clean up the city and rid it of all its vices and kind of like, you know, um, Hercules and the Aegean stables, you know, just come through and just wash out all the sins of the city and, and show the world that Chinese governments could could run a proper city and, and a healthy city and, and uh, that it was it was because the foreigners had, had been corrupt and and uh, and in collusion with all the gangs that they that they had ruined the city in the first place. Um, and and all of this is kind of well well documented. Fred Wakeman's book Policing Shanghai is all about this kind of story. But um, in the late 1940s, um, they just <clears throat> the Guomindang um, just very thoroughly went in and surveyed and and uh, started to regulate all of these so-called vice industries. And by then, I think the dance hall industry, it's fair to say, was um, very, very much of a vice industry. The, the, uh, there was a certain elegance and style and class to the ballrooms of the 30s, but by the 40s, they were all taxi dance halls, even places like the Paramount and Ciro's. And, you know, classy people could still go there with their with their dates and there were still women going to these ballrooms as customers, but for the most part, they were hostess clubs and the men were there for the hostesses. And 
And the hostesses, uh, you know, many of them had been roped into some kind of prostitution racket or another. Um, so it was a, you know, I suppose in, in their words, a, you know, a sinful industry. Um, and so they started regulating it. And then eventually there was a policy, uh, a nationwide policy to ban commercial dancing called the Jinwu policy, um, ban dancing. And, uh, in, in, and that was done in a very heavy handed way by the national government. They basically told the, the municipal government in Shanghai, you know, you have uh, just a few months clear in the city of all its dance halls. And so the, they held a lottery. Um, the city government held a lottery and decided, okay, we're going to shut down half the dance halls um, within three months through this lottery system. And all the dance halls at that time had been organized. The managers of all the dance halls had been organized under the Japanese um, under the Japanese occupiers, they'd been organized into a guild, which I call the Shanghai Cabaret Guild. And, they, and the guild had been organized in order to manage and control the industry. But now they were able to use that organization to fight this policy. And so they organized a huge campaign against this band dancing policy. And they argued this is going to lead to, you know, it's going to put thousands of people out of work. It's going to turn hostesses into prostitutes in order to make a living. Um, and they, and the day of this lottery on January 31, 1948, they held a big meeting at the New Zealand dance hall, one of the dance halls in the city. And, uh, they, and I, you know, you can see photographs of this in newspapers at the time. And I, I, I found in the, in the Shanghai archives, I found this collection of like 300 newspaper articles just covering this event. Mm-hmm. And they had all been pasted into this, you know, scrapbook by somebody for some purpose, which I didn't, you know, it's not totally apparent what that purpose was, but I think, I think they were trying to learn from this incident and it might've even been the CCP who put this together. um, It would make sense because of what happens next. Um, So they, so they held this protest campaign and they actually went to the government bureau responsible for the ban and they just trashed it. They just, they just ransacked the bureau. And again, there's, photographs of this of dance hostesses and, and male workers as well just storming into the building going you know room to room and tearing up all the documents in each room smashing up the furniture throwing files government files out the window like confetti and so you know that episode in itself was just this fascinating episode of of resistance protest you know um, the right to a livelihood and so on the amazing thing, I think, is that, that, you know, the government actually treated these people very well in, in retrospect. You know, they they arrested everybody that had some kind of signs of, of having done violence, you know, because there were thousands of people at the, on site and only a, a few hundred had gone into the building. So the police had to go in and separate the, the innocent people from the, the guilty ones. And they probably arrested a few hundred people and just and sent them to prisons all over the city and event and they interrogated them all. And I have all the records of their interrogations. And eventually they, you know, they kept, I think less than a hundred. I'm just going by memory here um, in the, in the jails. And then they held a trial, which was a very fair trial. They had, you know, an advocate on either side arguing, you know, and they tried to, 
They tried to find out who was the ringleader and who was guilty. It was the Communist Party involved in this incident and so on. And they ultimately let just about everybody go and they stopped the dam. So I think it's kind of a testament, actually, to the degree of civil society that existed in Shanghai by that time. You know, um, the communists, on the other hand, had a very different policy. They, they were very methodical about just shutting down the industry. But over a span of time, they knew that if they had done it overnight, it would just create chaos. So they just phased it out. They, start, they just kept raising taxes on the dance halls. They tried to, you know, set up ways to re-educate and re-employ the male and female workers in the dance halls. And they just... They also held this mass campaign in Shanghai society saying, don't go to the dance halls. This is, this is a decadent bourgeois habit, mm-hmm. you know, and we are building a new society. So they, they just attacked them from all sides, but in a very methodical and sort of painstaking way over a process of five years. Mm-hmm. So they phased out the industry and they did it with the minimum of kind of social damage. Now, there were people in the industry who were arrested, imprisoned, and even executed. Um, those were you know, the high-level managers of the industry who might have been you know, evading taxes or had been gangsters or so on and so forth. Um, my, I don't really know what happened to all of the women in the industry other than that they were just phased out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's almost impossible to find out what happens to these women afterwards. But I think they just tried to live a regular existence and, and just, um, and of course it became under the, the new communist era, it became, you know, you, if you were, had been a dance hall hostess in Shanghai prior to 1949, you did not talk about it. Right. You know, you just did not bring it up because, you know, your, your life could, could be in danger. You just had to, you just had to suppress that knowledge. And by the late 1950s, Shanghai, um, there was no dancing in Shanghai after the late, after say 1956, a new mayor came and it's interesting because from what I've heard, I I just did an interview with a guy who was, who's now in his eighties and he's a, uh, he runs a dance uh, studio here in Shanghai. And uh, he was, he was a kid in the 1940s and kind of came of age in the 1950s. and, And he was a lifelong dancer and his father was a famous dancer from the 1930s. Um, and he said that Shanghai's original mayor, Chen Yi, the first communist mayor, was actually a fan of dancing. And so he kind of, he didn't, you know, he agreed with shutting down the commercial dance halls, but he, but he kind of allowed people to keep dancing in the, in the parks and, you know, in public spaces. But then in 1956, a new mayor came into power and he just completely banned dancing from any public space in the city. So social dancing, you know, partnered dancing was totally banned. But then this guy went out to Xi'an, the the the, the, uh, dan- the the guy who runs the dance studio, who I interviewed the other day. He went out to Xi'an with his father, and in Xi'an they could still dance up until the Cultural Revolution, uh, or I guess they came back after the Great Leap Forward. So you know, you know, it's interesting that the the city that had done the most to introduce social dancing to China was the city where dancing was most suppressed. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> into the Cultural Revolution years. And then after the 1970s and after the death of Mao and the rise of Deng Xiaoping, it just exploded once more into the cultural scene and dance halls started up all over the city again. 
Well, that's actually, um, that actually brings us to the epilogue. And so that's probably (laughs) a a great place for us to, um, to start to wrap up. And so it, it, we've taken a lot of your time. So thank you so much um, for your thoroughness and for your willingness to talk about this really fascinating book. Is there, there's a whole lot in this book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich study. Is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to especially point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it? Uh, Just a couple things. First, I am told by, by lay people that it is a readable book, which I always, I'm always very proud of because I always wanted it to be a book that people outside of academia could read. So if you're not an academic, I hope you'll, you'll still pick up my book. And the other thing is that it's, uh, it, it will be available very soon um, as an ebook. Ah. So those of you who uh, are too you know, lazy to go out to the bookstore, no, <laughs> just kidding, who, who can't find it in your local bookstore, um, it will be available online. Um, eventually. So that's all I want to say about it. I think I've definitely talked people's ear off already. <laughs> oh, so yeah. what's next for you? I, you mentioned that you're, um, you just got the contract for this new book and you've been doing a lot of interviews. Um, is that what your immediate next project is? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm working on multiple projects as always. I'm, I'm very like, uh, I don't know. I have trouble committing to one project at a time. It's just my life story. But uh, one of the, but they're they're all kind of related, <clears throat> and uh, one of them is this book I mentioned earlier in the interview called Shanghai Nightscapes, which will come out of University of Chicago Press hopefully next year, and it's co-written with James Furrer, and it covers the nightlife of Shanghai over the past century, with a particular focus on the 1990s to the present. So it's more of a sociology and ethno- ethnography than uh, a historical book. Uh, that's a bit of both. And then I'm also working on a, a project documenting the jazz scene in Shanghai today and going around. In fact, as soon as I get off the, the Skype with, with you, I'm going to be heading off to the Cotton Club, one of the, one of the uh, blues and jazz clubs in the city, where I will be filming a Cuban band that's performing in Shanghai and interviewing some people. So that's another project, and I'm hoping to turn that eventually into a film if I can get the support and financing. Um, and uh, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've already uh, completed a documentary with a with another uh, American here in Shanghai. Uh, we finished this documentary on indie rock in China, and that's actually going to be screened at a film festival in Texas called the Thin Line Film Festival. Um, in February. So if you're listening in Texas, um, please go to Finlife Film Festival and watch our film Indie Rock in the PRC. Um, and I'm hoping to find other venues and festivals to screen that film in the near future as well. So I'm kind of working on on two different fronts, both the, the academic publishing front and the uh, independent filmmaking front. That's great. Um, well, yeah. Andrew, the book is not only extraordinarily rich and, and I can attest it's very readable and very well written, but I think our conversation's shown that you're also really a model of multimedia and transdisciplinary scholarship, um, which is really exciting. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk again once um, Shanghai Nightscapes is out. And best of luck to you with, the, with all of these uh, exciting projects that you're working on. 
Thank you, Carla. And thank you, thank you for um, all the wonderful questions you asked about the book. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um, it's been really great to talk with you today. So okay, you as well. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.